worship with others from far and near, to hear from incredibly notable speakers and learn how to implement the things that we learn into our local congregations. It was really a wonderful time for us to be able to grow closer together as staff and to be filled in a way that church leaders often don't get to be on Sunday mornings when we're up here um, leading and worshiping and, and working, really. The theme of the fellowship was centered around the communion table, what it meant to be at the table, and most importantly, who had a place at the table. The event was named after a hymn entitled For Everyone Born, in which the text of that hymn reads as follows. For everyone born, a place at the table. For everyone born, clean water and bread, a shelter, a space, a safe place for growing. For everyone born, a star overhead. The remaining verses of the hymn go on to include a wealth of dichotomies and opposites for woman and man, for young and for old, for just and unjust, abuser and abused, for gay and for straight, for everyone born a place at the table. I know that for some of us these binaries are comfortable and that for others we may feel as though we fall somewhere else in the spectrum, but I love the way that this hymn text names these seeming contrasts to communicate that everyone, from one end of the spectrum to the other and every place in between, has a place at the table. The hymn's refrain goes on to proclaim this, that God will delight when we are creators of justice and joy and compassion and peace. Yes, God will delight when we are creators of justice, justice and joy. This theme of welcome, inclusion, embrace, and invitation were the foundation of our time together at the fellowship convocation. We talked about what we bring to the table, what we receive at the table, how we are changed by the table, and how we are called to set the table. And this notion of setting the table is perhaps the greatest thing that impacted me throughout the week. One of our speakers was John Pavlovitz. Some of you may be familiar with his name. He is a minister and a writer who gained a lot of traction for his blog and the ways that he wrote so radically about inclusion and invitation. Some of the attention that he got wasn't as well received in some communities, but the pastoral staff is actually in the midst of reading his book entitled A Bigger Table. In it, he talks about how we build spiritual community that is authentic and hopeful and inclusive and therefore really messy. (laughs) But he said something in one of our seminars that I just quite haven't been able to shake. As he was talking about the overwhelming amount of work there is to do in the world in order to be creators of justice and joy, he came to a place in his session where he acknowledged with us that we couldn't save everything. But rather than leave us in that sense of loss and a little bit of hopelessness, to be quite honest, he offered us a charge, a call to action, saying, Save what you can, table makers. 
Save what you can. Table makers. Table makers. That term has been with me since it came out of his mouth. And since I've heard it and been mulling it over, I have been both rejoicing in the fact that we get to be table makers and wondering how in the world we be faithful table makers at the same time. By now, I believe we know and hopefully have experienced the communion table and the community of faith to be a place for all people, a place for everyone born, as the hymn articulates it. We've talked about this openness and this inclusive welcome in many ways this year as we've thought about who our neighbors might be, how God calls us to treat them, And I think we know what it means when we talk about it or think about it or conceptualize how it might affect our lives. But how do we put it into practice? How do we save what we can? How do we become faithful table makers? In our gospel text, Jesus offers a parable about a dinner party. We've all been to a dinner party of sorts, haven't we? Raise your hand if you've been to a dinner party. I'm sure certain, I'm certain more of you than that have been to a dinner party. Maybe some of us have been to several in our lifetime. And in my experience, every dinner party I've ever been to looks a little bit different, right? At the dinner parties involving my parents and their supper group back in Alabama, it's very informal, like very informal. Everyone who's invited brings an appetizer or a dessert to share, and we all sort of set our offerings along the kitchen counter in whatever order makes sense. People serve themselves, and on their way to whatever seat they decide to sit in, they pull a beverage out of a massive cooler of ice. (laughs) And those kind of dinner parties are my favorite. (laughs) They feel the most like home to me. But other dinner parties that I've been to have been a little bit more like what Jesus was describing. When I lived in Pensacola one summer during my hospital chaplaincy unit, the couple that I lived with really loved to cook. We'll call them James and Jean. They loved to cook and they loved to entertain. And I noticed that they always had a bit of a system with how they conducted themselves as their guests arrived. As soon as the doorbell rang, They both went to the door to welcome their company with a hug and a smile. Jean would lead their guests to the kitchen where a spread of appetizers would be all over the counter. And she would ask what people wanted to drink. And then, you know, as she received that order, James would go to the fridge and he'd make up whatever they wanted to have with their appetizers. We would often enjoy some food and drinks and conversation in the living room or outside on the screen porch. If it wasn't too hot, this was Florida, after all. And then we would move to the dining room to have dinner. As an honorary member of the household, I got to take part in the fun of serving our guests as we, the hosts, would take the plates of the people that we were serving and we'd serve up the delicacies while they waited at the dining room table. Most often, The last person to receive a plate of food was Jean, the one who'd prepared it all. And even throughout dinner, James and Jean both would notice if drinks got low or if portions became smaller and somebody wanted seconds. And of course, there was always some sort of fabulous dessert that Jean had made. So while she plated it, I would deliver it to the table and James would prepare a piping hot pot of coffee as we continued to share and fellowship and conversation. 
I always noticed how the people we welcomed into our home throughout the summer seemed to leave feeling honored, maybe even a little overwhelmed at how James and Jean had catered to their every need. But they always left with a very different sense of joy, a sense that someone made them the guests of honor for an evening in a way that other people just hadn't done. In the parable Jesus tells his disciples, it's important for us to know that he's working out of the context of a first century dinner party. Dinner parties in the first century were an extremely important way for people to maintain their place in society, especially when it came to who was serving, who was being served, and where all the invited guests were sitting. The most common practice was that the slaves of the host would go throughout the town and find those who were invited. They'd deliver the invitations, if you will. And as the guests who had adorned themselves in their finest clothes, oils, and perfumes entered the house, the slaves would then wash their feet as they entered. As the guests found their way around the table, they would sit sort of in a U-shape on reclined cushions as the slaves served them food on low tables. The most honorable seats were closest to the middle, and the further away from the center, the lower one's social status was. I can imagine that being one of these invited guests treated with such honor and dignity would be an amazing experience, especially in the home of someone who was rich or had a particularly powerful status. To be quite honest, I don't know how I would conduct myself in this particular situation. But you see, there's a big problem with this common dinner party model. And it's the fact that the people who actually received the invitations were people of wealth, people of power, people who counted as the in crowd. The hosts often invited friends or relatives and rich neighbors, they never seemed to invite those who couldn't offer anything in return. And that's what I love about this parable and what I love about Christ's teachings on it. Jesus encourages his disciples to always occupy the place of humility when they get invited to an event such as this. To always sit at the lowest place, the most humiliating place even, for the sake of being generous toward others. But Jesus takes it a bit further than simply instructing them to humble themselves, doesn't he? Jesus doesn't just want his disciples to be humble guests. He wants his disciples to be table makers, right? And how does he instruct them to do this? Jesus starts by instructing the people in whom they should invite to the table. He says, when you're having a gathering, like a luncheon or a dinner, don't just invite your friends and your family or your rich neighbors because those people can repay you. Those people can have you over for a dinner of their own. Inviting those people will be beneficial to you. Jesus goes on to say, instead, how about you invite the poor? the crippled, the lame, the blind, 
Invite the people to whom the world pays no mind. Invite the people that the world makes invisible and make them the guests of honor. Seat them closest to the middle for once. Another way, and perhaps the most important way, that Jesus instructs the people to be table makers is by his embodiment of servanthood throughout the whole canon of the Gospels. With his words in this passage, Jesus encourages the people to seat themselves with humility, to seat themselves at the lowest place among the guests. And yet, doesn't Jesus take time to feed the 5,000? even though he's tired and it's been a long day of work and travel? Isn't Jesus the one who stops in the midst of a desperate crowd to heal a woman from her ailment of continual bleeding? Didn't Jesus say that if someone asked us to walk a mile with them, that we should instead walk two? Isn't it Jesus who acknowledges the woman at the well, restoring her human dignity to her, though she was known as nothing but a sinner? Didn't Jesus himself remove his outer robe the evening before he was to be killed in order to kneel before his disciples and wash their feet as a servant would have done? as a slave would have done. And aren't we called, friends, to do the same? I cannot help but think that in order to be a table maker, we must first be servants. And that, my friends, requires the greatest humility of all. Because, you see, servants didn't attend these dinner parties in order to be fed. They were there to work to entertain. But if God is the host of the table and we are the disciples of Jesus Christ, then we are to be servants and table makers. We are to be the ones running out into the towns around us telling the rich and the poor, the old and the young, the just and the unjust and everyone born that there is a place for them at God's table that they have received a divine invitation to feast at the heavenly banquet as guests of honor. And if they decide to accept, to see what this heavenly feast is all about, we are to kneel before them, to wash their feet when they arrive. We are to be the ones who prepare the table and arrange the cushions just so and lead them to the banquet hall and pour their drinks and serve them their food and make sure that they have everything that they need. That's how we become table makers, by making sure that everyone born knows that they have a place at God's table and by serving them humbly if and when they come to receive. We do this because it was first done for us. We were invited to God's table by God's disciples in some way, shape, or form, weren't we? We arrived at the community of faith and we had our hands shaken and our eyes looked into and our souls spoken to with words of welcome, right? And we heard a holy message 
of God's great and immense love and grace for us that reminded us of our belonging. All because we accepted an invitation to the feast. We become table makers for others because those who came before set the table for us. This is the discipleship that Jesus modeled in its most beautiful form, really. Table makers training table makers. Rather than celebrate Holy Communion today, we're going to be celebrating it on September 15th during our Coming Home worship series. So while normally we would close our time with communion, instead I want us to think just for a minute about the call that we have upon us to be table makers. I want us to think about what it might mean for us to go throughout the towns around us sharing God's invitation to the feast and inviting those in our midst to join us for this meal of grace. I want us to earnestly think of the people in our lives who might need a reminder of their belovedness and exercise the courage within us to extend God's invitation. I want us to humble ourselves before people who've never had the privilege of being guests of honor and to serve them. I want us in this congregation to think about how we can be table makers for those who have less, those who are hungry, those who are not like us, and even, and maybe especially, for those who are hard to love. I invite us to pray and meditate about, upon how God is calling us to be table makers who extend God's invitation to the world as we move forward in our worship. In the name of the creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Amen.